truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. The nature of being homeless and living in places where you're sleeping somewhere different every night and there's this combination of everything being different every day and everything being the same every day is that time actually doesn't function very well. Like you don't, ha you can't map time. You can have an entire huge relationship in this, that is, you know, monumental in the space of a week and it be, you know, start to finish. I don't actually like talking about my life. I don't mind talking about other things, you know, things I saw or think or stories about other people, but I actually don't enjoy it. I'm not very interested in my own life. Um, I have experienced it. Just turn your radio off. It won't aggravate you. All know, you gotta do is listen to me My name is Vanessa Veselka. I'm a, I'm a writer and a novelist. Uh, I wrote a novel called Zazen. I write short stories. I write long-form nonfiction. I'm at the McDowell Colony, which is an amazing, amazing place for artists. Um, I'm on a fellowship here for five weeks. This studio is called Mansfield. She's beautiful. She's a beautiful little studio, surrounded by uh, the names of many great writers. I come from uh, both sides of the fence in the sense that I came from a great deal of privilege and I came from a great deal of, like, not privilege. <laughs> My mom was a journalist and became very successful and I, you know, went... I went from public schools into private schools and there was a lot of unhappiness in my home. I was very unhappy and I left. And I still think it was a good decision, um, even though it was very, very rough. At that time in my life, the way I experienced the world was that everything hurt. Everything was, was big and everything hurt, and I was looking for emotional safety. My relationships were sort of, the topography of my emotional relationships were mapped by, by, by need for uh, emotional safety. I was with, I didn't, he didn't know, I mean, it was clear to me he didn't know what he was doing and he was kind of pathetic. I mean, he was definitely an actual street character. It wasn't like he didn't know that world. I met him hanging out in the park in New York. You know, he was 21, I was 15, and I was definitely the one driving that show. I was, it was not like he was this predatory 21-year-old guy trying to get me in trouble. I was a desperately messed up 15-year-old girl trying to get him in trouble. And uh, so, and I succeeded in doing that, you know, um, pretty, pretty profoundly. So 
I talked him into leaving town because I wanted to get out. I wanted to leave home. And, and I talked him into going with me. So I left when I was 15 and I hitchhiked, I don't know, about that first year it was like 10 or 15,000 miles, which is a lot of hitchhiking. And I was living in truck stops. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of stuff. I had a backpack. I remember I had some jewelry in it. I had some notes, you know, I had, I had taken, I don't remember all what was in there, but I had taken things that like meant something to me. I mean, it was a very sentimental, uh, what I had brought with me was very sentimental and they all had very specific meanings to me. And I had my journal, I had my guitar, you know, that was pretty much it. I didn't, I had a lousy jacket. Yeah, it was scummy. We were going to New Orleans. I'd been to New Orleans that summer and I wanted to go to New Orleans. We both got picked up. Some huge rainstorm, like big Mississippi rainstorm going on and it's just like hard, loud rain. The wind was so loud, I couldn't hear anything. And the guy, I was like, what are you hauling? He's like, gaskets. I'm like, okay, and he said, we'll help you unload. And Pulling to New Orleans in this total downpour and pull into a funeral home. And it's like, oh, it's caskets. So we were unloading caskets in this pouring rain for like hours at all these funeral homes all over New Orleans. And that was my first, you know, I, I think it was the first dead body I'd seen because we were going in the back door. older guy was laid out on a table he was he wasn't um you know he he was pretty i guess he had gone through this sort of preparation so they were probably about to have a service or something But I remember, what I do remember was the casket name that I was carrying at that time was like Silvery Doe, you know? And, and I just, but that was my first experience coming into New Orleans. There was no money and no ideas. And, you know, he had a lot more experience in the street than I did. So he sort of went his own way. And I had to kind of make it up as I went along. So we actually split in a place called Gila Bend, Arizona, um, where I went out, you know, I... <laughs> It's another stupid idea. I was going to go, I was looking, you know, I had to find a way to survive. So somebody had told us about cotton ginning. 
We're like, well, we'll go work at this place. Oh, Gila Bend has a cotton, you know. So we're hitchhiking out to Gila Bend, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's it's the old Highway 8 in Arizona. It's one of like the hottest spots in the country. You know, and we get there and get dropped off. And the trucker's like, you sure you want to get off here? And it's like, you know, there's nothing around, you know. And I was like, yeah, you know, and walk over to the find the cotton gin, you know. And it's like, and the word seasonal comes into my mind. And I'm like, of course, it's cotton, it's seasonal. Like, it had never entered my mind that we were on a stupid mission. So you're standing there looking at a closed cotton gin, you know, and what do you do? You know, you just have to figure out the next thing. I did a couple of weeks digging irrigation ditches and there was a place that was owned by like carnies that had these three big tigers and like a hundred cats in a sandbox and it was all, but it was all like meth head carny, you know, people think, oh, carnival. It's like, no, carnival. Like it's, it's a really rough show, you know, these were, they'd gone to retire in the desert and you know, and it was, so they rented at this, this place that had been an old whorehouse from like the turn of the century when the miners were around and for like four bucks a night. And it was, you know, deadly scary really when you looked at who was staying there. For runaway kids or for any situation like that, you know, you really felt like you were in every town that you were in, um, that it, it you could live or die and it just wasn't really noticed, but there was a freedom in that and then there was also a horror in that. And there was hopelessness in many, many ways and a sense that, again, this actually goes into no one's watching, nobody cares. It's a freedom and it's a curse. Those sort of dilapidated downtown cores and the way that people um, live when there's no one watching. This is something that's radically different than it was, you know, 20 years ago because of our invasion of public space with phones and with internet and with all these other things is that there's always some a witness somewhere. But you know, when I was on the road, I was like everything, there was, there is no rest, you know? It's always this mix of like no privacy and all privacy because they, they sort of exist in anonymity next to each other. One of the horrors of it is, you know, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of other things that go on and you end up in the periphery of, almost everybody ends up in the periphery of sexuality. Like, you know, you're selling it or you're hooked up with somebody who's selling it or you're working at a place that has to do with it. You know, it is the underworld a little bit, you know? And so there was a boy whose story I heard. He, was, he left home when he was 11 or 12. He left from Canada. He had to go to Baja or something to try to find his dad. He, uh, his, he was trying to find his real dad and he left and he was hitchhiking. There's only one way an 11-year-old boy gets from Baja to Canada or vice versa. Right? Meaning he's going to end up dealing with sexual, sexual stuff all the way down, you know? Um, that's the only way. There's, everybody else takes you to the police station, right? So if he's got from Canada down to Baja as an 11-year-old boy, 
There's only one way to do that. So that's in so much of homeless culture and so much of the sort of posturing of how you talk about different things. Like, I never did this, I never did that. And half the time, that's a lie. But there's still this identity around it that gets, uh, that, so it's, it's almost always there in some ways. And this, you know, truthfully, this goes for boys as much as girls. But once you're in a truck, and the way I did it later is it was all on the CB. You know, you would come in and you would get the trucker you were with to help you find a ride. There's no, I think to this day, there's no word for woman on the CB. It's still beaver. And so it's like, you know, it's, there's no way to even, your voice on the CD is, CV, uh, CB is basically saying you're a prostitute. Like, unless you're a, you'll hear some female truckers and there are more, a lot more female truckers now. So a lot of that shifted some. If you imagine the most crass, misogynist stuff you've ever heard. With a sort of internet comment board mentality. And you put them together. This is what happens every time you get on a CB. And there was always a story that you had to have about why you were there. You know, you had to have something that made people think you were worth trying to protect or you were worth trying to take. And uh, so, you know, people take advantage of that and it's easy for somebody with that job to take advantage of it because it's still a really big problem for law because first of all, they're in places where people mostly don't care and they can pick someone up anywhere and drop them off in any state and there's no there's no way to even process a missing persons across straight lines until it's already kind of too late and then you're not really sure. I mean, it, there's a whole bunch of systemic problems that make that difficult, but mostly that stuff just goes on all the time and nobody does anything anyway. I just wrote this piece recently called Green Screen, which was about the lack of female road narratives and why they matter. And it was, and in part it was like, you know, there, guys didn't have to have those stories, but you do as a woman, you know, you, because there, there are already narratives about men on the road, whether they're dangerous or whether it's like they're on some adventure or whether or not they're just like looking for a new place to find, they don't have to have that. But for a woman, it's, you had to have that story of like how how you were there not by choice you had to um and you were going somewhere safe and it had to be completely sanitized and it had to be completely asexual and it had to be completely like that was the only way through
So one of the things is that a lot of truckers can't read. Now this has probably changed some, but I'm sure it still exists. And, um, and so they're navigating by uh, color and shape and streets. But when they get into a town, they're screwed because the street signs can get, you know, like it's a lot easier for them to get exits, numbers, basic things. You can usually read a few things, but when it's like, you know, La Fourchette Avenue or something like that, sometimes, you know, they can't navigate in, in, in the city in the same way. One of the reasons you would get, get a ride other than like sort of sexual harassment was so you could read, right? So you'd be reading the signs to navigate. It's really necessary for somebody who's got that job and who has issues with literacy. left home at 15 and I was hitchhiking around and um, I was very sleep deprived and I was living largely in truck stops and I met and got away from this guy I always thought was a serial killer. good reason to think he was. I had been in a truck stop where there was a body found. He seemed to reference that body. You know, when he picked me up two days later, there were, you know, he pulled a knife on me. He pulled over the side of the road. You know, the profiler told me, the FBI profiler said, you know, a gun is about control and a knife is personal. There were a lot of features of it that felt psychopathic rather than violence. I started interviewing people who were working on the case of this guy named Robert Ben Rhodes, who was a uh, serial killer, is a serial killer doing time, who uh, would pick up mostly young runaways and he would uh, chain them in the back of his cab for two to three weeks and torture them horribly before killing them. And he often photographed them. Uh, and he was, when he was arrested, killing one to three women a month. Um, there's really big differences over the numbers of people he killed um, because the profilers think he killed way, way, way more people. Inside the truck, they found a gruesome array of torture tools, chains that attached to rings welded to the back of the sleeper compartment. His truck logs show him in the range of about 50 uh, killings in like the 10 years before, he, or five years before he was caught. Some people think he killed upwards of 50 women, and there are reasons to think that he could have killed that man. Fish hooks, bloody towels, and a briefcase filled with the implements of a sexual sadist. I met with FBI folks in Texas, and then I ended up going back through all these truck stops, because part of it was I couldn't remember where I was because I was really sleep deprived. I was having trouble finding out where it was. So it ended up being part me trying to find out more about him to see if I could understand if it was the same guy, and then also going back through these truck stops, and then I began to get the stories of the women that he had murdered and looked at their police reports and learning more about them. Sexual predators will pick victims that they consider the forgotten people. They're banking on that element that law enforcement and society doesn't really care about. 
hitchhikers or the less established folks. So here's one of the things that having traveled a lot and been around a lot of dicey people gave me. They were like the sudden mood switches, the change in power struck. You know what I mean? Like these were things that I had seen in more than one person. And there was this moment, you know, I was reading on this reading this really trashy true crime book about Rhodes, and it had a letter that he had written to his wife. And in the letter it said run. Like it's, it kept saying that you got three options, play, pass, and run. I always told you you could run. And it just kept saying that in the letter, which was, of course, what the guy said to me was he looked at me and said, run. And, you know, Rhodes was a, in the psychological games. That was a lot of his orientation of how he sees himself, you know, as this like master psychological game player. He's not. He's not that bright. When I was trying to narrow it down in the Pennsylvania, Virginia, you know, long 70 area, like, okay, who's working in the mid-80s, who's a serial killer, who picks up this kind of women? Uh, and I got to like 25 and had to stop. And I was like just east of the Mississippi in this area in the mid-80s. There's redhead murders, there's Ohio prostitute killers, Goebel, there's, you know what I mean? And those are the ones we know about. And so like you just get to the point where people go, was it Rhodes? And it's like that question lost its meaning in the middle. Like I, I, I got to the point where like that question no longer had any Meaning was it Rosalind? It could have been him. It could have been someone else. I mean, it was like there's so many. There's 200 of these guys on a watch list now. So I came out of it going like, was it was it Rhodes? I'm like, probably not. And and people are like, how could you say that? I'm like, well, I don't see enough evidence that it's him versus 150 other guys. I'm just doing what I do, but it got your attention. Particularly because I have kind of a exotic sounding or romantic sounding story, um, I find that uh, it's infuriating to try to break through people's mythology around it. Like somebody asks you a question, and you're just dealing with they're contending with their mythology of something. And like even if you give them an authentic answer, they don't really hear it. Like it just stays in the mythology of like, oh, you're a person who does this. 60 Minutes Today show, you know, a bunch of other things that approached 48 hours. It was all going to be how to feel to be in the truck. Do you think it was the guy? Like it, that's all it was going to be. Like it wasn't going to be about these women on the road. It wasn't going to be about anything else. It was going to be about that. And I'm, I, I, don't, I don't crave n notoriety that way. You know, I mean, I, I have... Um, I want to make my living, I want to do my work, but I don't actually, I, I don't actually want or like that kind of attention all that much. And if you're a woman and you're on any kind of news television or, or t you're on television, again, going back to the common train and misogyny and putting them together, like you are asking for an enormous amount of like, you know, death threats, I'm going to come fuck your daughter, I'm going to rape you. And the, you know, I mean, like, that's just normal. That's normal for any woman who goes on television to just get fucking stacks of that shit.
I stay away from. I say I don't read reviews, uh, and I don't read comments, um, and because I just get to, I have don't have a thick skin. You know, when something comes out, I put a put a big helmet on, and I just kind of wait till it goes away. I had a lot of moments like, oh, this is what it looks like to be away from home. I think, you know, getting my first tattoo was a moment of that, was like, wow, I'm, you know, this is permanent. Like a really, really pathetic, like uh, very sort of run-of-the-mill biker butterfly, you know? And it was like very old school tattoo people, you know, it was just biker scene, New Orleans biker scene. It was what I could get for 15 bucks that it made guns out of like um, G-strings from guitars and 8-track cassette motors. So the, those were moments that I sort of felt like, well, you can never re-enter the world now. I think there is a sense, I think the reason we sort of look for those moments is because we're constructing a narrative arc, you know, kind of in a way when we're doing that. We're saying we came from here and we're going there. How do I want to be remembered? Um, well, let me think for a second. Uh, as a kind person, you know, I mean, like that's, I actually hold that as a primary value. There are people who manage to live even in the decline of anything with incredible grace and, and joy. And um, I wish I was one of those people. I wish I was more like that. Every, every story's freaking horrible. But at the same time, when you're in a place where everybody has that story, it means something different than when you're the only one in the room who has that story. And so there's freedom and there's horror. You know, they, they go together in that. The one thing is I wish I had done was I look back now and I, like if I had known there were teenagers in squats going to Krishna feeds all kind of living together, I would have gone and done that. But I didn't know anything about that. So I was around, you know, people twice my age who, you know, were just out of jail. Some of whom could read, some of whom could It was a very different group. So I didn't have any kind of teenage subculture. Feeling a region or feeling an area, like I remember coming down, uh, you know, being in Topanga Canyon and, you know, getting picked up and somebody handing me like a six pack of California coolers, you know, and, and coming and like drinking them all and uh, coming to the ocean and, you know, getting dropped off by the ocean and it was kind of warm and and, and it was that California, it was this combination of like seediness and ease 
that was so Californian. Like that sense of California has stayed with me to this day. You know, like that just combination of like, it's all kind of easy, it's all kind of seedy, and it's like, it's, there's just all these combinations, but that tone of it. And, and I, you know, I believed I was gonna, like the California coolers, you know, convinced me in that moment that this was gonna be a good day. And yet it, it wasn't really probably gonna be a good day. You know, it was just like, You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. Music in this episode was provided by me, Dance Was Any, recorded under my other moniker, Cough Cool. You can find links to my music pretty much anywhere, but I would start at everythingisstories.com. You could go to Spotify, Apple Music, search it, stream it. If you head over to our website, you can find links to past episodes, our social channels, our newsletter, and photos to complement this episode taken by our friend Robert Johansson. Everything in Stories can be found anywhere online, on all the social media platforms, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Follow, like, subscribe, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>